Hello everyone, my name is Arti and this is the Mahabharata. Episode 8, All in the Family. This is our third episode on the story of Astika, and I swear we're going to wrap it up this time. To recap, who is Astika? He is the son of our two Jaratkarus, born with two missions. One, to save his dad's ancestors, who are literally clinging on to their last thread of life in the cave. And two, to save his mama's family from the curse of his loving grandmother, Kadru, who, remember, was cheating and gambling with her sister during the churning of the oceans? Now you're asking yourself, is this really important? For someone we're never going to see again, this fellow's taking up a lot of real estate in our story. And you may be right. Astika is not so important as a character, but he's meaningful as a concept. His name signifies this. He's the opposite of Nastika, or the doubter, the naysayer. In other words, he's the positive ideal of what a person should be. The lizard Ruru is lecturing the Brahmin Ruru on this, saying he should be more like Astika. And Brahmin Ruru, who recently almost lost his hot young wife to death by snakebite, is curious to know who is this Astika. A very famous work, authored by the very famous scholar Alf Hiltabeitel, once memorably called the godfather of Mahabharata studies, yes, I'm looking at you, Raj, is entitled The Education of the Dharma King, referring to the idea that a big part of the Mahabharata is directed at teaching Yudhishthira the right way to be a king. This is true. But the Mahabharata is also educating Brahmins. As we'll see, there are many Brahmins engaged in violent lifestyles, and the Mahabharata really doesn't like it. Its teachings about ahimsa, non-violence, non-injury, non-harm, are broad ethical concepts, but they're most pointedly directed at Brahmins. Remember, this is a work written by Brahmins who are thinking through what's the right way to be in the world. If we were to do a family portrait of Astika, you'd have little baby Astika in the centre, his shy mother on the one side and his overbearing father on the other, before he buggers off to go sleep under a tree. His gambling granny, Kadru, stands behind his mother, but you can sense the tension. She's already cheated her sister into slavery and now has sentenced her children to die a horrifying death, burning alive in Janamejaya's snake sacrifice. So it's a little awkward. On the other side is Astika's grandfather, Kashyapa, looking remote, aloof, and not all that interested. I mean, he's got 12 other wives and about a gazillion other grandchildren, so his mind is probably on the ballooning family budget. Somewhere in the background also hovers Astika's uncle Vasuki, who has raised him in his father's absence. Maternal uncles are important in our story, as we'll see. (laughs) 
When we concluded last time, Astika's poor great-auntie Vinita, mother of birds, had been doubly doomed to 500 years of slavery. Once because she deformed her firstborn son and he cursed her, and the second time because she lost a very stupid bet she made with her sister and rival co-wife, Kadru. Now she's miserable, but can only be released from slavery by her second son, who is the magnificent Garuda. What manner of bird is Garuda? Wikipedia says he's an eagle, and Wikipedia would never lie, so eagle he is. He's majestic and commanding, giant in size, blazing like fire, brilliant, terrifying. He can cover the entire sky in one flap of his wings. Even the gods quake before him. But his mother is a slave, and it's embarrassing when friends come over. Garuda hates seeing his mother scrubbing floors and washing laundry, and he vows to free her. So he offers Kadru and his snake cousins a business proposition. He says, you want the nectar of immortality, which is being monopolized by the gods? I will get it for you. In return, you must set my mother free. The snakes are all excited. Yeah, dude, let's do it, they say. And Garuda flies off on his mission. He has some adventures along the way. Among them, terrorizing the heavens and scaring the pants off Indra, the chief of the gods. But eventually, he and Indra make friends, and Garuda even agrees to become Vishnu's favored mount. In other words, if Vishnu is the US president, Garuda is Air Force One. Particularly if Air Force One carpet bombs entire populations of Aboriginal peoples and then eats their roasted bodies as snacks which is what Garuda does to the Nishads, for example. But there's a problem in his budding friendship with Indra. Garuda needs the nectar of immortality to free mum, and Indra's not so keen on sharing it. So they hatch a plan. Garuda will borrow the Amrit from the gods, he will turn it over to the snakes, thereby fulfilling his part of the commitment, but before the snakes can imbibe it, Indra will steal it back. So the snakes will never actually have a chance to consume it. Pretty brilliant, right? And it works like a charm. Garuda takes the nectar there. I'm thinking limited edition Macallan sherry oak single malt, aged 18 years in dark Spanish cask. So exclusive is it that the snakes feel the need to dress for the special occasion. So they set up the bar, line up the playlist, then hit the showers. By the time they return, fresh and ready to party, it's gone. All they can do is lick the area where the precious nectar had spilled, and so they end up with forked tongues. But they're never going to be immortal. So the snakes are conned out of the nectar, but Garuda has fulfilled his side of the deal. His mum, Vinita, is now free. And she determines, hmm, maybe I'll stay away from the races from now on, especially if they jeopardize life and liberty. As for the snakes, as per their mummy's curse, they still have to die in the fire at Janamejaya's sacrifice, and only our boy hero Astika can save them.
let's take a moment to think back on all that had to happen to bring about the snake sacrifice. We had Veda, the long-suffering student who became Veda, the lenient guru, who had Utanka, the obstreperous student who insisted upon paying his guru's fee, which the guru's young wife set as King Posha's queen's earrings. Everyone with me so far? With great effort, Utanka gets the earrings but then promptly loses them to the wily snake king Takshaka, who leads him on a wild goose chase through the underworld. Utanka finally retrieves the earrings, but not before he's had to eat shit and kiss ass. Eat bullshit and kiss horse ass, to be specific. This leaves such a bad taste in his mouth that he decides to instrumentalize King Janamejaya for his revenge. That's one strand of the story. This intersects with the story of King Parikshit, Arjuna's grandson. Parikshit is out hunting, is led astray by a deer, then feeling hungry, thirsty and cranky, disrespects a Brahmin, whose hot-headed son curses him to die by snake bite. Takshika, the snake king, bribes the only person with the antidote, so leaving his son Janamejaya open to Utanka's persuasion that snakes must die. And now, a moment in Philosopher's Corner. All these people are operating on the understanding that they freely chose a course of action. But as we're learning, this was all going to happen anyway. Somebody knew that there would be two Rurus, somebody knew that there would be two Jaratkarus, somebody knew that there would be a Janamejaya and a snake barbecue long before any of our characters were even born because the Celestials had set it up eons ago. They had our characters' names, dispositions, propensities and weaknesses all pegged eons in advance, raising the vexing question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to act or to choose to act? Do we have any say over our lives or was everything predestined a long time ago? On the face of it, the Mahabharata seems to be saying that human agency is an illusion. Like characters in a drama, say Hamlet, we have the psychological feeling of autonomy and believe ourselves to be free, but in actuality, like Hamlet, we're bound by a script that's anticipated our every thought and move. But as we go on, we'll see that the Mahabharata doesn't actually like this conclusion, the idea that we have no agency whatsoever. So it'll find ways to disrupt it. For example, it'll say that even if everything is scripted, the way we interpret that script, our emotional response, is within our control. Whether we approach a situation with anger or kindness, with pride or humility, with fear or equanimity, that choice is always ours and ours alone. But let's conclude our story. Astika has already saved his dad's side of the family simply by being born. Now he has to save his mum's side, the snakes, from Granny's curse. You're going to love how this all comes together. It's sheer poetry. Astika goes to King Janamejaya's sacrifice and politely and eruditely requests entry. Janamejaya is impressed by the young Brahmin's demeanour and he offers him a boon. Meanwhile, 
Remember that Janameja's priest had wanted a special clause entered into his contract that he would never deny a Brahmin? Way back when Janameja had been cursed by the bitch and was freaking out and had to find a priest to help him expiate? At that time, we thought this was a strange condition to enter. I mean, he could have asked for anything, wine, women, flying horses. And instead, all he's asking that he never deny a Brahmin, we were ready to toss that away with last night's pizza. Now, here is the Brahmin Astika asking for an end to the murder of snakes. The scene is set for a dramatic conclusion. All this time, snakes have been dropping into the fire, sizzling, shrieking in wild panic. Now it's Tukshika's turn, and he, the snake king, the original source of all the trouble, has in terror sought refuge with Indra, the king of the gods. Once the magic spells have been activated, however, even Indra can't save him. So Tukshika tumbles from the heavens through the atmosphere toward the flaming mouth of Janamejaya's fire. But before he can fall in, Astika interrupts, requesting forgiveness for the snakes. And all the action freezes. While Janamejaya and his priests debate to do or not to do, to do now, to do later, the flames leap towards his trembling, dangling body and Takshika is suspended inches from the blaze, convulsed in smoke. But Janamejaya's priest has vowed that he will never deny a Brahmin. Astika is a Brahmin and he's requesting that Janamejaya pardon the snakes. Janamejaya has no choice. Astika was just a boy, says Lizard Ruru to Brahmin Ruru, and he saved the snakes from extinction. So learn something, man. The Brahmin's function is to forgive. His heart should be soft like butter. He should be a refuge to all who suffer. He should not be engaged in wanton violence. And on that note, let's say goodbye to the snakes. Now we're ready to set up our main story. We're leaving the snakes behind, but snakes will never completely leave us. For one thing, don't look now, but the earth is supported on the head of Shesh, the first of snakes. Vishnu sleeps in the hood of Shesh. And in the Aranyaka Parva, Bhima will have a near-death encounter with a snake. And in case you hadn't noticed, half the snakes are dead, but the miscreant who started the whole mess, the snake king Takshika, he's still alive. But that's a story for another day. If you'll join me for the next episode of the Mahabharata. Music